back to another episode of like dragon like sun i'm jay outway and i'm jack outway this is a father-son podcast about dungeons and dragons things fifth edition in specific well not necessarily yeah well you we both play fifth edition but i got my start playing uh well you know basic set rules back in well i think it was actually before it was officially called first edition (sighs) right um yeah uh so how far we've come yeah we have come a long long ways and it's only getting better all the time Every uh, day. there has never been a better time to play D and if you're here it's probably because you're thinking i want to play better D and and we're here to help you your role model might be critical role i mean you see them Every week. Yeah, if you've got... Except the last week of if each you've, month. If you've gotten into Dungeons and & Dragons and kind of missed the Critical Role boat, that that's okay. Um, there's like 300 episodes for you to go out there and, lot, and but, watch and catch up on. I mean, on. They're, they're trying to make recaps, um, but, but it's, they have, it's a lot. Yeah, the, the crew over there at Critical Role have done uh, wonders for popularizing mm-hmm. D&D and, and also giving us really cool role models to base our, yeah. our games off of. I mean, obviously, people complain. Oh, the Matt Mercer effect. There's too high of a standard right. now. My players. So the Matt Mercer effect is that you know, dumb. players, new players come to the table expecting it's not real every dungeon master to do like the same thing that Matt Mercer does, and I don't think that that's a necessity. Um, I don't think Matt Mercer runs the definitive D and D game. He runs a good D and D game. He does great characters, and that's why people um, love it so much. Is because it's it's really because he's in tune with the players. Sure. Yeah, more than anything, more than all the crazy voices he does, and more the than the enormous the amounts of Bretton world so building. That's cool, and we can acknowledge but that. But you don't have to do any of that. But you don't really. have to do that. Um, but what you have to do is is know your players. Yeah, respect their boundaries, know what they're comfortable with, what makes them laugh, and that's the best kind of game you yeah. can run. And, and people, I mean, even invite them into like, to, to, yeah. to do the story with you, not just yeah, yeah, you know, with new or old you. players. Like some of my friends, are like I'm too nervous. I don't think I could DM for new players. You know, it's like I, I feel like I'd mess it up their experience. I'm like, as long as you're just like not completely rude and ignorant of their characters or them as players, you're gonna be fine. You know, like just don't be. I don't know how to say it. Like in a in a pg manner just be kind to other people you know respect them show respect towards boundaries towards what people are comfortable with but also acknowledge people in game and they're gonna have a fun time and it's fun to watch people who like the critical role team who do that um they're they're great with their characters they really get into the role play they talk to each other in character a great deal and they they're good at finding that sort of you know the mm-hmm. the conflict in their own personal stories to explore which is uh additional to all the conflict that the dungeon master comes up with um but like any D group their campaigns sometimes come to a close yeah 
and they have very recently well a couple months ago now so they took a little break off and then like also back. any super cool D group especially ones who are getting paid to do it and professionally hopefully, as uh, this episode yeah. releases it should be just before or just as campaign three begins yeah and so uh, we will be tuning in and maybe giving you an update next week as that how that or, yeah went i think i'd like to do a little bit of a of a like dragon like sun take on what we think our first take on their characters their character sure. builds what kind of like they've done this time that's different from before or the same as i mean as we've before. got like, tons of predictions um, like talison's definitely gonna have some homebrew class whipped up and yeah well matt made it for him but you know, we're just joking <laughs> uh, around but, but we're gonna we're gonna do a little talk a little about you know the other thing that i think maybe old school dungeon dungeon masters like myself uh we often don't uh, I often don't put wild mount into official canon in my mind. Mm. I treat stuff from Eberron more officially than I treat stuff from uh, Exandria. Sure. And, and wild mount is a and, constant in Exandria yeah, for those and, and, the uninitiated. And why, why is this, you know, the explorer's guide to wild mount is every bit as valid of book as the wayfinders guide to Eberron is. Well, that's the outdated one. Isn't it the, what's the new one called? Uh, Eberron Rising. Rising from the last but you know what I'm saying? Like that that Wayfinders came out, we we dipped into it and used things from sure. it. Definitely. I've been more reluctant to do that with Wild Mount. And I'm totally. I don't know if that's a if that's a sign of my age and that I'm just like a little bit more sort it's of a homebrew world. Well, weary yeah, of other world, and the thing is, oddly, why I've watched more hours of of people playing inside Exandria than any other side than I have watching anybody playing inside Eberron. Um, and I'm still like now as I'm opening up and looking through the, the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount, finding things in there that I go, oh my God, that would be great to port into my Curse of Stride campaign. Mm. Um, which is where, you know, I play predominantly and I, I don't know if I'll ever run a game inside uh, Exandria. I mean, never say never, but I think it is a, a, a space that we we should take more seriously. And yeah. in many ways, it's actually kind of a perfect space for beginner DMs to also set up in because you have got tremendous amounts of fan generated artwork and write-ups oh, yeah. and accessories totally. and Discord channels. And oh my goodness, if like if there is a, a world that's like super developed and talked about right now, it's Exandria. Like you totally. have no shortage of, yeah. of ideas or stuff to go in this space. Uh, it is a great world to, to play around with and, and still not fully fleshed out. No, uh, no, no, there's so much to explore. I mean, this is like, I mean, with some context that they're going to be exploring the Marquette, is it called? Yeah. Uh, and so that's like the third continent. So their first mm. continent with Tal'Dorei. Which is the big one. I think right, or, and then we were the, the Wild Mount was an interesting one because it's kind of it. It really more like monstrous races. It's split in two, soon, right? You know, uh, Dwendalian Empire and the uh, Kryn Dynasty, and it, it allowed them to have a real like you know setting of that was you know two sides at war mm. and how to run a, a war campaign is really a lot of what wild mount is about like how to what is life like in the midst of a war especially as you get closer and closer to the fighting zone uh and i think that they did really well with that and there of course there's a third country uh sort of the continent 
or country well, or, or sort oh, of right, right, right. you know within wild mount there's the um sort of menagerie coast oh, well, which is yeah. run by the cloven concord uh and that is actually an area of wild mount that was as the lore goes uh settled by by rich people colonists from uh, whatever this mysterious new continent is, right? Marquette, yeah. So there's a lot of, there used to be, you know, M- M- Matt Mercer would talk a little bit about how there'd be all Marquisian this or that mm. in um, in yeah. in the various ports and along the, the coast. It? And and I think that's interesting. Mm. That there's a whole language, uh, a Marquisian language that people know how to speak. Um, yeah. It is pretty cool. I, I think isn't Marquette this sort of big deserty, mountainy place? I'm not. not yeah. I don't know well, much it's, about it. It says it's an arid continent. I don't know much about right. it either. I mean, that, that's not quite true. Vox Machina has visited it. I mean, it has shown up in game in the story a bit. Um, we'll have to see how much more Matt fleshes it out. I think he's, he already knows what it looks like. Uh, I think there is maps of it in general, but we're going to see uh, a lot more of that obviously come up mm. um in game but it's got its own language sort of just like you know um in our last one there was uh liam o'brien's character was zemian which was again another sort of empire right yeah it was sort of the northern part of the dwindalian empire i think it used to be its separate um Things country absorbed uh in the age of arcanum and its ancient culture sort of you know trickled down with people sure. still speaking and of course because liam spoke german he used that as what zemian sounds like right um so it'll be interesting to see do does any of the other members of critical role speak a foreign language uh <laughs> yeah. does anybody speak spanish or something on the on the team Amy and if Carrera. so and if so does that uh does that mean that's what's going to, you know, Marquesian is going to sound like? Marquesian, yeah. Marquesian? I think they'll mostly just go, I actually have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. I'm excited whatever way it goes. But there's a lot in Critical Role that actually makes it way onto D&D Beyond. I mean, they've partnered with them throughout all of campaign, too. Absolutely. And I mean, and rightly so. I mean, it's a big business. It's like one of the best, the top Twitch channels out there. They yeah, drive. It, it owns, it earns like nearly 10 million over those two years. No, no, no. Is that over the years? That was over two years. Over yeah. two years. Anyways, it's the biggest earner on there. They've got, you know, a massive uh, fan base. They, uh, their Kickstarter for their animated series, which is also coming out very soon. February, I think, yeah. Um, is you know all this stuff has been driven by its fans so it would make sense that D D's said okay you know we need we need to these guys you know, on board you know get these, these are... guys on board they they're hugely influential on the game and again i guess the point of this episode is just to kind of say you know like this isn't this isn't some sort of like fringe content that this stuff is official dungeons and dragons and it's uh yeah a lot of it actually think we're actually starting to forget where it came from especially the stuff from the very first campaign yeah uh there was some there's some classes that uh make its way on here and there's it's it's funny because there's a mixture of free and paid content that you can find on dnd beyond some of it you get for free when I, whenever you make a dnd beyond account it's just there but some of it is paid in that you need to unlock the uh, Explorer's Guide to Wildmount to actually see. Um, but we'll go through 
all of that sort of stuff here quickly. Uh, in terms of the free stuff, the big one obviously is the Blood Hunter class, right? Um, that you can see if you go on D&D Beyond, which we've talked about Blood Hunter in another episode and how you weren't really sold on it. I thought it was too edgy and we tried to make a character together. We ended up making some good ones, yeah. We yeah. made some good ones. You know, it's not always resulting in instant self-kill. And I've played with Blood Hunters before and they've got actually quite cool characters. Um, and like I learned to make custom blood curses for people and that becomes a really cool part of their character, you know. But still, some people might not be so attracted to that and that's okay. But there's other free things you might not have realized come from Critical Role. Um, like the Gunslinger subclass. I know way more people who are into Gunslinger um, as well. Um, also, Oath of the Open Sea and Way of Cobalt Soul, yeah. too. Uh, I mean, Firearm Specialist as a feat mm, connected to that Gunslinger thing. You know, I think that oh, that whole as a class, and I've seen it in, in my own campaigns. I've seen people bring it to Eberron. I've seen it show up in a number of places where... Uh, where it's suitable, where it works. And, and the rules uh, for, for firearms, even if people don't run Critical Role um, or even don't run Gunslingers, people still use these rules here, like the, you know, how much ammo costs, you know, how much uh, does a palm pistol deal, how much does a musket yeah. deal. And there was, you know? there was sort of like in the Dungeon Master's Guide, like, and that this goes back a long ways, always was a sort of reference to say, hey, you could have firearms that are out of time that are both like, you know, either you know, gunpowder based or even energy weapon based. So mm -hmm. it's not like super crazy that when critical role started to be, you know, popularized the gun, uh, slinger type idea that, you know, people were working it into their D and D games. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the idea of all sorts of trick shots and things like that, I think get people thinking, you know, all the different types of things that you can do with that. It, it's really could be its own class, which is the funniest thing about gunslinger. Um, and I think many people want to see it become that, but, Right now it sits as a fighter subclass, which I think is fine as well. You know, fighter gets a lot of cool stuff as well, and it's quite minimal to allow subclasses to really take over. It's an interesting sort of matchup against Battlemaster almost. You can see the parallels there. And I think it does provide an interesting alternative in a Renaissance or Western-style setting. Uh, it's quite cool, really. Um, other stuff that is paid, however, um, includes some of the sub-races from Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, but mostly, again, focuses on Wildmount things like Dunamancy. Um, and there's a bunch of Dunamantic spells and subclasses for you to play around with as well. Um, most perhaps notably, the Echo Knight, which people seem to love and I love as well. Classic A, if not S tier. Just so good um, as a subclass. Conceptually, how far you can go with it to make it like whether it's a dunamancy thing or if it's just like you i mean you could do long lost you know, brother who died in your arms during a war and you still call on their spirits or whatever it might be it could be slightly necromantic it could be a fraction of yourself it could be anything you want this echo to look like it's one of those like subclasses that are so potent for role play and still so mechanically rewarding that it makes them guaranteed like you're gonna have a good time if you play this you yeah. know like you're not gonna be let down by the subclass which is not something you can say about Graviturgy and Chronergy, but um, that's another story. The spells they get are often neglected, though, but um, still Echo Knight. If, I think we've gone through Echo Knight in the past, but it's just such a good subclass in terms of how you can really coordinate getting to more places, teleporting around, making more attacks, and it, it's cool concept if you haven't checked it out i really recommend checking out echo knight um it's a shame no one got to play it in campaign two or we didn't really get to see any echo knights um yeah well hey there's still time true true well i guess in campaign three there's a chance but 
Yeah. Maybe other one shots or offshoots. I don't know. I think it's just a cool concept, but still i mean caleb experimented a little bit with dunamancy but we never got to see an icon fighter like that yeah what you know and i don't know how much the players are gonna sit back and think about all the places that they have visited with their you know pcs Mm -hmm. and think oh you know what'd be interesting is to go back and you know take one of those crin knights and have them somehow washed up in some Marquesian gambling dens. You know, there's like casinos and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. like Vegas there or something. And so this like maybe down and out uh, Echo Knight, you know, That's that cute. they find in a casino somewhere there, you know, some refugee from the war, if you will, if you know what I mean, somebody, a deserter maybe, or some mm-hmm. sort of really weird sort of side story or backstory to it that um, one of them runs. Uh, you know, these sort of things could show up. Uh, I don't know. I'd be excited to see if it does. But other things like Chronergy and Gravitergy, I mean, you think about the amount of spells that are only limited to them, it almost feels like a waste of such cool spells. I mean, things like Magnify Gravity, Wrist Pocket, Pulse Wave, Gravity Sinkhole, Temporal Shunt, Dark Star. I don't feel like those are finding their way into the game. No, I mean, it's because D&D Beyond leaves it specifically only for Chronergy and Gravitergy. You can't even access it or look at it any way unless you're that specific subclass of wizard. Um, and only again, you only get your half of it, right? If you're a chronergy, you only get the chronergy spells. And if you're graviturgy, you only get the graviturgy spells, you know? I mean, there's so much good graviturgy stuff that it seems like a right shame that you don't get. Yeah, or another way to have a look at it. Given the graviturgy wizard isn't robust in terms of its mechanics, it almost feels like, well, I don't really want to play this. And then you lose out on all these cool spells, right? I mean, the amount of times my friends have been like, this spell is so sick, time ravage. And it's like, you know, you want to play wizard? Do you want to play Graviturgy specifically? It's the only way you're going to get it, you know? I mean, there's other ways. In the book it says, you know, someone could learn Dunamancy, but it's specifically Dunamancy scholars, right? And as far as D&D Beyond is and concerned, D&D Beyond, just Graviturgy. And this is in magic. an age before, especially when we're, when we're playing online, um, we want the digital tool set mm. to work it's very hard just to say as a dm to somebody oh yeah just write that spell in yeah i mean i don't i could copy it over homebrew the whole thing you know copy paste and give it to them as a spell uh it's doable but anyways i think you know i'm just trying to um be nice to have dnd beyond just make it clickable for everybody and i think it also means like spells that you can't read like that you know if you were choosing your spells what do i want to prepare and you can't just very quick, easily click and read on them. They're not going to be spells that you ever consider. So mm. by hiding the gravity spells and the time spells away, it kind yeah. of does them a disservice, really. It's true. They are such cool spells, though. I mean, with the way you can move people around with it. I mean, yeah. you saw some of it with, um, what was his name? Uh, Start with an E. He helped out the party near the end. Ah, it's already gone. <laughs> but he was, like, floaty and had, like, had it set it on end the drow dunamancer wizard dunamancy wizard um he was cool and he had all sorts of things like gravity fissure um and things like that that were crazy flashy the spells and we saw caleb use fortune's favor too um i'd like to see more of that used honestly a movable object Essek. as well so what essek that's right i knew it was right with an e yeah sorry um, the e threw me actually i was like because it's the s sound i was like i was lost for a second essek yeah, I mean, some of these never showed up, and they're just such, so, I don't know, so cool. 
And then we get to sub races, you know, which again, you hardly ever see. I have a player playing a Pallet Elf because I wanted to incorporate them into my world. I mean, they're yeah. sort of tied to the yeah. Moonweaver, but the idea of people who've locked themselves away, it works for my campaign where there's just underground subterranean settlements. I mean, Drow wouldn't, Drow would be super pale now. There's no exposure to the sun, right? I mean, why they're all gray or darker skinned? I think, I think has, that's just an well, it, okay. antiquated well, old so, D&D well, thing. Well, the reason behind it is it Lolf or whatever no it has to do with how older generations of Dungeons and Dragons didn't have dark vision they had infravision so essentially you didn't see in the dark you saw heat signatures in sure. the dark and that's how it's written no and in so Dritz, Dritz. yeah and so in Dritz uh, you know um R.A. Salvatore's novels upon which many people learned about the drow and fell in love with uh the idea of playing a drow gone good breaking good mm. um was yeah that so you've got these these the idea was that the skin um the skin color reflected their ability to sort of try and reduce the amount of radiate heat radiation they could give off that it was like camouflage and could help hide them um from those with infravision yeah Sure, but I, I don't know. I think it, it just makes sense that there's pallid elves. You know? Yeah, I mean, things that live underground t- or tend to it become white. Just treat them and, as and evil white and blind. And, frankly, they yeah, don't need I mean, to. They tend not to develop dark that, vision. That they there's just not this like evil worshiping them. They're just they were underground and now yeah. they're not anymore. You know, more like um, blind sight than. But they get some crazy stuff like advantage on all investigation and insight checks. How insane is that? Like that's crazy. No, every single one. I mean, think about how good that would be as an inquisitive rogue, you know? Just like, you've pallet elf lo- like left from underground and you're inquisitive about the world around you and you've got advantage on all of your insightful fighting things. It's crazy. Um, plus, there's also, um, you get some free spells like light, sleep, invisibility, which are all sort of fun as well. Um, good if you have been subterranean all this time, but that's a fun one. There's also the Lotus Den Halfling, which I think people overlook sometimes as well. Um, you get things like druidcraft, entangle, spike growth, which could be cool with other things that are unconventional, um, like a sorcerer or clerics or many other, like monks even could be cool with that. Like you run up the walls and leave a spike growth behind you and try and follow you, they can't. But then also being harder to track and things like that, it's quite ori- original, you know. They're not super packed full to the brim with features, but they're part of that world, you know, that people often never look at you know you look at halfling you just scroll right past lotus den you know maybe consider it talk to your dm like could this be something to consider yeah absolutely uh, i i think it's often easier to work races in than classes sometimes mm, that's fair. um you know there's so many variants on elves already to true you know slip another elf in or a slightly different version of a halfling and it's pretty easy to do um sometimes easier to do that than say dropping a warforged into your campaign setting like that may not mm. go so well um although it'd be interesting to see if if um somebody in the party would play a warforged inside exandria because i don't know if we've really ever seen matt go for that idea there's obviously some history behind automated uh sort of robot things that once upon a time crash landed in wild mount far in the north so you could be you know descended from that somehow yeah i think there is opportunity to play uh warforged in the 
in a wild sure. mountain setting. I mean, yeah, like you said, the whole AR thing. In our previous episode, we talked about autonomes as well. Could yeah. that be a fun thing? Like, you think about Hubberduke and the advancement of technology there. You know, sure. even like Darrington with Doty, you know, there's an opportunity for someone to play a Warforged right there. Or an autonome or whatever it might be, right? Or your reborn. Again, our episode on Warforged versus Reborn. I think Autonome's got to be weighted up against those two now because Autonome's way better. But Super fun. Yeah, it's still in playtest. But, I mean, there's also, people don't consider, but the Orc of Exandria is its whole own race and take on Orcs from the Exandria world. Um, honestly, it's pretty much the same. But they are characterized as less, like, just generally violent and more that they've been plagued with a curse that they either have to accept or reject you know and that and that's mm. yeah i mean well obviously there's um it, it does feel a little bit like not uh the brave from uh season two but there's a quite uh, distinct possibility that you could see somebody uh wanting to play that on the the party i know travis willingham you know i think he's looking to go back to a probably a big character of some sort i think so i don't oh, know yeah. i think he's lost i think he's he's been I, changed uh, he's gonna go full faster no i i saw i thought i saw uh, there was a uh, an episode of them sitting on the sofa uh chatting and and talks machina and yeah the idea of a minotaur came up and you should have seen how excited he looked Ooh, in he his could eyes be, he could still be a minotaur like wizard or something he could go crazy with him. maybe i think that'd be fun i think there's like a there's something in and I, i've played with players and i know you have too who you know, yeah, they do once in a while venture out and try to play something else, but they're, they really are, for whatever reason, people who just love playing a particular type of, of character and that they're actually really good at that particular type of character. And, um, I think it's sometimes it's okay to be that sort of person as well. Like it's okay yeah. to be good at, uh, playing the big muscle guy. Mm. If you're wondering what the difference between the orc of, Volos and Alexandria is there's no difference same thing exact same same. there's no difference in abilities at all literally nothing besides how the lore is written which again why did they make a blank of Alexandria for everything oh actually speaking of speaking of things that are also a little Mm. bit different uh dragonborn right in Alexandria I've got yeah I didn't even think about that I mean again think about how much there is out there that you don't even consider you know so dragonborn have got the choice of tails and no tails well there's two there's the ravenite and the draconian i believe yeah so there's a couple um, of different varieties yeah, of, of dragonborn that. which also given that we've got another dragon based setting coming out kind of soon sure i think they're going to um, lean into more gem dragonborn and yeah yeah i'm sure like that but i mean but hey still. here's here's one more set of options if you want to if you're getting into a game like that and you want to make sure that you've got a a kind of unique-ish uh, Dragonborn. There's mm. some some cool sub-races uh, in here. Yeah, I mean, Dragon Blood Dragonborns have tails. I mean, in Exandrian lore, I think it's like, is it I don't, is it Wildmount or is it um, the other one, Taldore? Could be. I, I think it's know. Taldore. I can't remember. I don't know. I'm butchering it. It's not my world. But um, the Dragon Blood is essentially the mighty conquerors and rulers of the Dragonborn. And the Ravenites were the slaves, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of overuse of slaves and whatever in Dungeons and Dragons, but still, there's a time where they overthrew their masters, and now they're sort of at this weird state where there was the once rulers, and now there's equality. I mean, interesting things 
discussions you could have there or moments of role play but the dragon blood get intelligence and charisma increases again i'd argue that going forth it could be anything you wanted with tasha rules um finally dragonborn have dark vision thank god um other ones i believe they didn't in the past which makes literally no sense yeah right um ridiculous uh and they get a not so great feature where they can essentially give themselves advantage once per short or long rest with intimidation or persuasion Meh. and then the uh the ravenite um get the same thing but for strength and constitution and whenever they damage uh, whenever they take damage you they can immediately retaliate as a reaction which is way better again it's only once per short or long rest but still pretty cool um yeah if you think like go full like again this is not a bugbear so you can't go super far but get a pole arm with this guy anyone within 10 feet they get poked if they try and hit you but still cool oh it doesn't even say melee weapon you could be have like you could have a longbow on you and anyone hits you and you longbow them that's, that's scary that's crazy that's scary okay um consider take with that what you will but <laughs> the strength and constitution makes you think you know melee but mm, i found be a, with it. i Why found not? a chapter in uh it's like in um the the wild mount book here that's got a, a paragraph on marquette oh yeah we had missed uh looking through Have it we? i thought i was looking beyond for the winds and waves of the far southwest of wild mount across the lucidian ocean and the osmit sea one can find a chain of islands called the Hespet Archipelago, and farther still, the shores of the continent of Marquette. The pebble beaches of the Bay of Gifts greet weary travelers. Gifts, like, like the hippos? No, with a T. Gifts. Gifts as in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, where the port city of Chamel offers gambling and extravagance to traders who travel from afar. Beyond the port lie the rocky Agar Agrid Mountains which spread for hundreds of miles filled with deep chasms and endless caves housing predators lying in wait so yeah expect new monsters okay okay the mountains eventually give way to the immense and this is what i think people think of when they say marques the marquesian desert whose scorching sands stretch from horizon to horizon the overwhelming heat deadly sandstorms and ravenous denizens of the dunes threaten any caravan Dune? caravans dunes worms does that say purple worm um that attempt to cross these arid lands in search of any oasis of civilization near the center of the harsh desert surrounded by a sprawling network of small villages is the city grand city of and i'm going to butcher this as well ankarel and i know that vox machina went to ankarel um mm. the center of culture and history and power in marquette ruled by the mysterious undying and I'm going to push this as well. Juman Sa Ord. The streets of Ankarel are safe and rich with music and culture, a sharp contrast to the desolate lands that surround the metropolis. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and it goes on. There's a couple more paragraphs and stuff. I hear more. Tell me more. <laughs> the deserts of Marquette echo a once lush landscape that housed prominent civilization during the Age of Arcanum. Uh, one that ended in terrible conflict between warring nations during the early, early years of the Calamity. The battles mm -hmm. that raged here reduced verdant lands to sand and ash. Do we play in the time of Calamity, perhaps, where Marquette is he'll set still it, lush and I green? think he'll set it later. Yeah, I think, it's, I think he will it, as well. I don't think it's going to be a timey-wimey thing. A timey-wimey thing. 
Uh, buying knows? a multitude of secrets uh, that factions across Alexandria are willing to go to any lengths to claim. See? Hmm? Burying, relic hunting, burying secrets. Going to go dungeon crawling a bit yeah. more. I'm excited to see where they go with it. Could be cool. Yeah. Um, no matter the direction, I'll be supportive because we got to stick around with for a couple hundred episodes, anyways. So, <laughs> well, we—I guess we do and we don't. I mean, I, I, as much as I love, uh, you know, the Critical Role team, you know, I'm I'm only going to watch an actual play uh, if if I can get into the story, mm. um, and and I will bear with it for you know several episodes, knowing that it it like any t- campaign, it takes it's a slow, while to get you know, going. Yeah, sure. Uh, or not. I mean, to be honest, I don't know how Matt plans to do it, but I've been in, you know, a few campaigns over the last couple of years where first episodes drop us straight into the middle of uh, a big, cool fight. So sure. there is ways to really kick off uh, a game, you know, in the middle of action rather than, hey, you guys meet at a tavern. Right. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Meet at the casino. Why not? <laughs> or battle at combat episode one. That'd be crazy. I don't know. I'm excited to see what monsters and magic there are. And if they are going relic hunting. Well, there is a few monsters that I wouldn't mind mentioning out there. Yeah, yeah especially to, to anybody who's a DM who's running Curse of Strahd game. There's a fun, a few fun things uh, to steal from uh, Wild Mount. Mm. Uh the first is the gloom stalker it's a large monstrosity it's like a big bat shrouded in in shadows yeah shadowy mist it is like the perfect thing for coming out of of the you know barovian mists to terrify your players if you want like a scarier gargoyle even this could be cool yeah well i mean this thing's it's kind of big uh it's got a fly speed of 80 and it has Fast. this you know pretty good multi-attack where it can use um, one of its uh, claw attacks, essentially, to try and snatch a player. Uh, if it hits, it does 2d6 slashing damage plus uh, 2d6 necrotic damage, mm. and Ooh. the target is grappled, escape DC 17. Jeez, While grappled, you're restrained. And then, of course, it's a large creature, uh, with a good strength score, so it's just gonna pick you up and carry you off. That's so much right. fun. Yeah, and then eighty feet as well. Good and well, that's the other thing. It. Then, like once, if it's yeah, even if it's only used half its like last half its movement to go up mm. forty feet, um, or even if, if you know it's climbing on an angle or whatever. So you say, okay, you're up thirty feet in the air at this point. If you manage to break that grapple, there's another three d six just going splat on the ground. Fun. Yeah, it's tough fun and it's a, the picture artwork for it's terrifying it's lovely it, w- it would be great in a, a D&D as is the he's got these things called husk zombies which I mean I mean I'm, I'm always a big fan of the Strahd zombies but you know if you're running a large Curse of Strahd campaign you, you know you can never have too many different types of zombies uh, and his husk zombies are great they're sort of fast they're actually spreading the zombieism they, move, and, they yeah, yeah things that they kill with the zombieism come turn into zombies yeah, quite quickly and they so, move fast too so if you wanted to put a few uh, you know zombies. civilians in the in a fight scene and watch them go down and then turn into zombies people go oh shoot we gotta actually keep the villagers safe yeah we gotta keep these things away from the settlement that they're moving towards yeah um, yeah that would definitely be a fun uh, encounter 
Um, and they, they throw in something called a shadow fury in here. Uh, sorry, shadow fury, a sea fury, which is like a, a sort of a, a more powerful sort of sea hag type creature. It's fey. Um, but I think this could actually be really great in like Lake Zarovich or someplace like that if you mm. wanted to add in uh, another water element of some sort to that. Yeah. It'd be kind of fun. Um, And also there's something else I wanted to mention that I've stolen ages ago into my Curse of Strahd. I had a a player playing a cleric uh, who was the one who ended Mm. up kind of getting their hands on the Sun Sword, sword, right. But so that was going to be kind of a little bit dumb uh, because the cleric was sort of not the sword sort of wielding type. Yeah. And so there was a magic item uh, and I think we may have discussed it in an episode ages ago when I did this, uh, it's called the Dust Crusher. It's almost exactly the same as the Sun Sword, except that it, uh, I think it casts sunlight. Yeah. Uh, which is proven for them to be super powerful uh, at, you know, blasting its way through all sorts of baddies. Because uh, a lot of things, including like that Gloomstalker I mentioned earlier, have got serious sunlight sensitivities. True, um, so true. it's nice if you have a way of generating sunlight. Yeah, I mean, again, such a cool item that we don't even like necessarily remember is from like like this yeah. setting. You think of the dust of deliciousness. You think of things like corpse slayers or things that I see now all over the place and no one really knows that it was from Critical Role. I mean, all from this cool book. I mean, all of it is paid. I don't think any of the items are free. Yeah. Um, like some of the other content out there, but there's, there's so much interesting stuff. Like, all of the artifacts that are arms of the betrayers or all these things that go from dormant to exalted. Um, things like the, what was it like, um, is Driftglow actually sending stones? I think they're from elsewhere too, but they're they're cited under um, Eberron, or Eberron, Wildmount. <laughs> Wildmount as well, right? I mean, there's so many interesting potions and rings and things like the Rod of Retributions. I mean, there's so much cool stuff here that, and spell bottles. I remember I mentioned the spell bottle originally. There's so much cool artwork and stuff to check out here. Um, some of it more due to Mancy based, some of it not, you know? If you want a format for evolving magic items, which I know works great if especially as you get to higher levels and people want more of a connection with their weapons like the whole dormant awakened exalted system with a bunch of these things not even not all of them are even weapons some of them are just magic items is is really interesting stuff to look at um and we talked about this a while back but i think it's all sort of a good thing a practice to appreciate these elements from critical role that we often don't realize have made it a part of really the culture of the game yeah yeah they are becoming increasing i said if anything i sort of feel like these paywalls that exist sort of between Mm. um wild mounts content on dnd beyond and what people may or may not be able to see or use it um and the book it's funny uh, the other day at the dnd celebration when they're sort of you know teasing at some of you know what watsi uh wish of the coast and dnds are bringing out in new books Chris Perkins, who's one of the lead designers, said, oh yeah, we're gonna be bringing out an all new setting for D&D, which is the first time we've done so since, you know, Eberron. Sure. And I'm thinking, wait a sec, no it's not. What about Exandria? What about Exandria? Um, I do feel like there's still like some, like reservation to sort of say that, that, oh, the Wild Mount stuff is totally canon. Mm. But there's a published book. 
Yeah, I mean, and all these other books that, you know... Theros and... Yeah, they were all written by somebody else at some point. Like, you know, it, it doesn't have to have, you know, the Chris Perkins, Jeremy Crawford names on it for it to be real. And if you are a Critical Role avid viewer, I mean, you've seen more of this setting than you've perhaps seen any other set yeah. played. So, like, why not make, you know, either drag as much of this stuff as you want into your own homebrew world? Mm. Um or yeah we'll yeah, just set yeah. your game in this world true go for it i mean get, give it a go you know i mean there's so much out there and even an adventure called was it frozen sick alongside it um to experiment if, if you want a pre-written adventure like that but there's it's such a potent world oh yeah to explore i mean there's a look at oh, okay so or say perhaps you're running another um setting like icewind mm. dale sure there's some stat blocks in wild mount like for frost, frost giants frost giant zombies and yeah. frost worms and you would be remiss not to put those in totally, your setting totally uh those are a couple of really good creatures some good artwork and some lovely uh stat blocks on those so mm. yeah well in excitement for campaign three yeah off to off to Mar marquette off to the the desert off to the casinos um <laughs> i'm excited to see what we learn about this distant land yeah and who knows uh, does this mean that perhaps not right away but in a couple years time there'll be a, an explorer's guide to marquette yeah will they call it an explorer's guide or what will they, I we, don't know, yeah. Is, yeah we don't really have an official Taldori. No, there's book, no. Well, uh, I think Darrington Press, which is yeah, a publishing they, company, they, but it's not through D&D Beyond. Yeah, and so you don't see any of that content. In D &D Beyond, in which D &D. is really a shame. I guess. I mean, there are people who still are playing with books and paper at tables. Yeah, uh, and I'm and sure we, there are people who make and homebrew we have, in it. But. And we have books on our shelf that we've used from time to time that aren't in here either, which is, you know, fair enough. But it does, it is funny, like, I feel like we're playing in an age now where I play online you know, as much as at a table sometimes. Yeah. Um, and you want everybody to be able to have the same content to work off of, mm. which is why the digital properties are so great because it's like an even playing field of like, okay, these are the rules that we all have. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, there is a Taldori campaign setting reborn book coming out. I think it's slated for late December, the holiday season sometime so i don't know interesting to see what that's gonna look like but yeah it's pretty cool yeah Woo. well exciting stuff all right folks um, well stop listening to us and go, listen to critical role. go tune into critical role episode one let's see what they've done um so to all our feather feather fellow critters uh bidet how do you want to do this bye-bye